You're listening to episode 112 of the Tennis Files podcast with special guest Mark Lucero. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. My name is Mirban Iranshad, and on the show, I interview the top tennis pros, experts, and coaches to help you improve your tennis game. And today is no different, and we have a fantastic interview, if I do say so myself, with Mark Lucero. And Mark is a pro tour coach, so he actually currently coaches WTA pro Shelby Rogers, uh, who has been ranked as high as top 50 in the world. He has also coached some fantastic players such as Sam Query, Eugenie Bouchard, Ryan Harrison, Nicole Gibbs, and Allison Risk. And Mark himself uh, is a fantastic player. He played Division I college tennis at Boston College. He is also the founder of Ramp Tennis and the co-founder of First Break, which is a 501c nonprofit tennis academy. And Mark also attended one year of law school, which I just bring up because I am an attorney myself. So uh, he attended one year of law school before coming to his senses. I think that's pretty funny, but uh, we're, we're glad that he did come to his senses because he has become a fantastic coach as well as a commentator and analyst on uh, big networks such as ESPN. And so it's really a privilege and an honor to speak with Mark about uh, his uh, the involvement of his career and how he uh, went from being uh, just a, a great player to then a fantastic and uh, high-level tennis coach, his journey, his ups and downs, uh, some advice for, for you all, whether you're a competitive tennis player or an aspiring coach on how to uh, really level up your game in your life. So I think you'll really enjoy this episode with Mark, and I really do appreciate him coming onto the show. I had first met him at the City Open Taste of Tennis and approached him, and uh, he was super kind, and uh, it was very, very nice that he spent uh, quite a bit of time with me on the show. So without further ado, here is my interview with Coach Mark Lucero. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. And I'm really honored to have Mark Lucero, who's a fantastic pro tour tennis coach. And he's currently the coach of WTA pro Shelby Rogers. Uh, I went to, into his background, excuse me, uh, you know, earlier in the intro, so I won't uh, repeat that. But uh, it was really uh, fantastic to, to see all the different initiatives that Mark has uh, undertaken, as well as his great work uh, as an analyst, commentator, and also, of course, uh, coaching many great uh, players in the world. So, uh, Mark, I just want to welcome you to the podcast, and I really do appreciate you taking your time uh, on this uh, fantastic day to talk to us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Love talking tennis. 
Oh, yeah, for sure, Mark. And I remember first meeting you actually at the uh, City Taste of Tennis event uh, in D.C., I think a couple months ago, and you're very pleasant. And, uh, and Man, I had uh, some great food there. Geez, what an event. Yeah, yeah, it was really cool. A lot of great music and some some cool coaches and players there, and and the food, of course. I think I gorged myself there, um, but uh, yeah, and then uh, really glad to make this happen. So, uh, first off, uh, Mark, of, of course, I was doing a little research on you, and I heard through the great big interwebs that you are big into yoga. So I'm I'm wondering, are you kind of doing the Warrior Three yoga pose as we speak, or? <laughs> I uh, I did a, a little round of yoga this morning. I didn't go to the studio, but I did my own little flow sequence after getting up. Sometimes it's a good way to work out the stiffness in the morning. But uh, no no warrior three. I'm sitting down right now in the living room, looking out, uh, trying to trying to sort of get rid of the sorrow after watching my Chargers just lose right now. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm sorry about that. I mean, we were talking earlier before I hit the record button, and I'm a, a Washington Redskins fan, and so I also pretty much feel pain almost every week. So uh, it's it's kind of tough, but hopefully our teams will bounce back. Um, uh, it, and and speaking of yoga, I mean, it's actually a, a fantastic thing that you're doing. And and do you first off, do you practice uh, very frequently? And second off, uh, how helpful do you actually think yoga can be for tennis? Oh, I love it. I actually, I try to go as often as I can when I'm in LA, when I'm home, I'll try to get out there, you know, at least three times a week. If I can be at four or five times, I'm pretty happy on the road. I don't get to go as frequently, but I'll try to make sure that I do a bunch of different sequences when I'm in the gym, either as part of my warm or as my cool down. And, you know, since I started doing it, I, I used to have a lot of lower back problems. I think just a lot of, you know, a lot of wear and tear in the body from growing up playing tennis and competing. And since I started doing yoga, I found my body to be a lot more balanced. I think for tennis players, it's great to develop functional strength. I think a lot of the poses will push you in, in certain positions. And, you know, I don't think you see people in yoga studios who are not strong or who are not functionally strong. And I, you know, I think there's so many benefits to it. Obviously, the mental benefit of it, the being able to control your breathing and being able to sort of control your mind. I've seen my attention span become a lot better. I remember in, you know, when I was starting out, I had a really hard time concentrating for a short period of time without doing anything. Like when you're sitting there before the class is starting and you're sort of quiet in your mind again, you're breathing. I, I used to have a really hard time with that. And now it's like I can't find enough time to do that. Um, so, yeah, I, I just... I love going. I go to a really cool studio here in Hermosa Beach, and it was actually a couple athletes were involved in starting it, and so they bring a, a perspective that I find, you know, I find very similar to mine. And yeah, I just I have uh, I have nothing but uh, good things to say about you know about my practice and about the value for athletes and, and tennis players in particular. Uh, that's absolutely wonderful, Mark. Appreciate you uh, speaking about the benefits of yoga. And I think for for those of, of us uh, listening to the show, I think it's definitely something you'd want to try. It's kind of funny because I, I do try to stretch. And actually, uh, this morning, I did some foam rolling as well and uh, meditation as well. I practice daily. But I feel like, as you mentioned, yoga kind of combines the mental and physical aspects of those two activities. So uh, definitely something fantastic for... for yeah, I actually think one more thing too for, mm -hmm. for tennis players, are sometimes our bodies become really overdeveloped on one side because of the nature of the game. And in yoga, you're forced a lot of times to really balance your body out to be able to function on both sides of your body to be able to hold positions, you know, on one leg, on both, you know, on one leg at different times. And a lot of the stuff in tennis is sort of evened out 
in your, you know, in, in the practice uh, when you're, you know, when you're on the mat. Yeah, those are great points. Again, I'm just curious too. Uh, one more question about yoga, at least one more. <laughs> um, I, you know, you've coached some a lot of great players, such as uh, such as Sam Query and e- Eugenie Bouchard, Ryan Harrison, Nicole Gibbs, Allison Ricks. Risks. So I was wondering, uh, did any of them practice or try to to practice yoga, and kind of how did they like it? I think a lot of them incorporated. I know. I mean, when I was with the USGA, I spent you know some time helping with the guys like like Ryan and Sam and. Um, you know, when their primary coaches were gone and I know, I know Sam for a a while was going to, you know, a hot yoga studio. I think most of the athletes, you know, I mean, Jeannie and and Allison and Shelby, I think all have spent time doing yoga at different points in their, you know, in their careers. I think most, I actually think most tennis players have, have had exposure to yoga, either, (laughs) either people forced them to do it or they did it on their own just because of the balance, you know, just because of the value. And I think you see so many athletes in all sports, you know, basketball, football, soccer, using it as part of their active recovery or using it as part of their normal fitness routines, just because of, you know, depending on what type of yoga you choose to do, it can be either restorative, it can be sort of like yin yoga before you go to sleep, it can be relaxing, or it can be, you know, if you're doing like a vinyasa or ashtanga, like it can be something that's really challenging and and almost the same sort of uh, effect as like a high intensity, like interval workout. Very cool stuff, Mark. Uh, Definitely. Definitely, we need to try that out. So, uh, kind of getting into your story and and your progression to a fantastic place and and where a lot of I think uh, people would want to be as well. Uh, where's your or what is your very first memory of of hitting a tennis ball? Wow, um, I have two memories. I have one. Geez, I was probably I don't know how old I was. Maybe eight years old. I was with my parents we were on like a kind of like a family vacation i think we were in newport beach or something and i think i went out to the courts with my mom and we were hitting some balls and i remember there were two courts we were on one court and i was probably doing more chasing than hitting um but uh i think i remember there being two guys on the court next to us and i was just so impressed with like how low they were hitting the ball over the net i remember saying to my mom like gosh, these guys are hitting the ball so low over the net and they were hitting like the ball like in a straight line. And, you know, whenever I hit the ball, it was like this huge, like it was basically a lob every time and like this huge arc on the ball. And I was so envious. And, and then to this day, I have no idea if those guys were good or not. Like, but for me, I must've just started, but for me as a young kid, I was like so impressed with that. Um, my first memory, I guess probably before that, my first memory was when I actually first started, I was taking my brother and I, we took a group lesson with, two friends of mine, they were twins. And then one other guy who was in my class, it was like, they were like my best friends, like in the whole world. And we, so the five of us took a group lesson once a week, starting one summer, I think I was like nine. And, um, yeah, I remember hitting home runs and we're hitting the ball outside the court. And, uh, but it was so fun. It was like so freaking fun. And I loved every minute of it and I couldn't wait to do it more, um, to do it again. So that was, uh, you know, those bring a smile to my face, those two memories. I love that. And and something you said is really important is that, you know, when you like in the beginnings of your tennis career, you you had a lot of fun. And I, I was wondering, like, what in particular about those experiences made it so much fun for you to participate in tennis? Uh, well, the first thing was I did it with my friends. Like I said, there were five of us who took a one hour group lesson together. And, you know, like I said, it was with my little brother and then three other guys who were my best friends from school and we were all beginners when we all did it together and we all 
you know, messed up together and we all played games together and the coach, you know, he did a good job, I guess, keeping our interest because I kept coming because we all kept coming back. And, you know, but, but the biggest thing was, you know, messing around and laughing with my buddies. I mean, I can't tell you really, I don't remember anything that I learned from those lessons, but I remember, you know, I remember playing dumb games like four square and I remember, you know, all of us, you know, hitting home runs, like hitting the ball over the fence and then having to chase it back. And, um, I remember eventually starting to have a little bit more specific practice, like eventually, eventually, but during those lessons, um, <laughs> something, you know, I think you can trick kids into learning and he clearly tricked me into learning because I don't remember anything from those lessons specifically that he taught me, but I remember having a lot of fun and obviously I kept at it, you know? Yeah, for sure, Mark. And I think we definitely need to, at least with, with kids, sort of remember that we, we need to really hook them on with just how fun it is. And I, totally. when I, yeah, for sure. And when I speak to a lot of, uh, professional players, uh, on the podcast, they mention like that, the most important aspect of it, like the key tip really is, is to just have fun with the sport. Otherwise you're not going to be able to improve. You won't have any passion. So I just love hearing that experience that you had there. And obviously it's taken you really far. And, um, you mentioned that later on, uh, after, uh, these clinics that you were participating in, uh, participating in, you tr started to train more seriously. And of course, you know, you, we'll talk about later about you playing in college. So that, that means that you, you were a, a tough junior player. So at what point did you start training more seriously? I remember at some point after those lessons, my brother and I sort of transitioned into like private lessons where I don't know if we ever took lessons together, the two of us like regularly, but I remember we both, we would, we would have lessons one after the other. I think we would each get a half hour like alone with a coach or we'd each get 45 minutes alone with a coach. And that became sort of when things got a little more serious and then you know my dad would take us out like a couple times a week my, you know I remember I actually remember going to uh one of these tennis stores and when we bought our first basket like my I went with my dad and my brother and we got this green ball hopper that I think held maybe like 75 balls <laughs> that's mm -hmm. so such a weird memory but um yeah like I remember when he bought a basket and then he bought a bunch of balls like, I think like Costco we bought a few of those boxes of balls and um filled it up and then yeah he started to take us out to the courts a couple times a week to sort of reinforce what we learned in the lessons and to start actually, you know, doing extra drilling. And, you know, e even that, um, I like loved every second of it. I mean, drilling for some people is super boring, but for me, I loved it. And my dad made it, you know, challenging and fun by, you know, he bought cones. And if we hit cones, we got to stop at the store for an ice cream or a candy, like depending on how many cones you nice. hit. Um, yeah, my dad always had good, like, uh, <laughs> like, I incentives for us when I played soccer before that, like, you know, every goal was a dollar. And, um, but <laughs> one year, one year, my brother cleaned up, he scored like 20 something goals in like six games. But, um, but anyway, the, the, the same incentive system was in place like for tennis, you know, and it got, you know, it had us both like hooked and paying attention and we both like loved it. Um, and I think I played my first tournament probably, you know, a year and a half later when I was like 11, I was like dying to compete. And, and when, once I got a taste of competing, like it went like, terribly i remember like losing i actually don't remember losing my, my mom remembers me losing like badly but i remember afterwards i told her like mom i cannot wait to do this again when's the next one and she like the whole time she was prepared with this talk for like it's okay you did great but what's your first time and i expected me to be really sad and not want to play again and i like literally came off the court and i'm like mom i cannot wait to do this again wow yeah uh, so I, I was like i was head over heels like in love with tennis you know 
Yeah, that no, that's absolutely amazing. And uh, yeah, I think you know, going back to your dad's uh, strategies, I think he's really ahead of the game. Because I mean, when they study, uh, you know, these days like a human performance, uh, attaching a reward to uh, to some sort of task is it makes it more highly likely that you're going to be successful in it. So I really love uh, what, what he was doing for you there. Um, and then with your junior tennis career. Uh, like, can you talk a little bit about that? Like how, maybe how far up in the rankings you got and like maybe some of the ups and downs and how just generally that went for you? Sure. So I played soccer. So I started, maybe I played my first tournament like when I was 11. So that was probably end of fifth grade or so. And so until high school, I played soccer as well. I was playing, uh, in San Diego, I played tennis and soccer and I played both sports and I think for maybe sixth and seventh and eighth grade, I played a couple, I played one or two more sports, I played basketball, like my grade school. So I was playing all the different sports, but tennis was one that was not really seasonal. The other ones were more seasonal for me. And my freshman year, uh, by my freshman year, like I was starting to play, you know, tournaments full time. I was probably seventh and eighth grade in, in, in grade school were the years when I was playing tournaments sort of year round. Before that, it was maybe a couple here and there. And I started to, and I, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't a good player. Like I'll just <laughs> say that right now, but I loved it so much. That I think I became a decent player. And by my freshman year in high school, I was more serious. I was like in the 14s and, you know, in Southern California, starting to like win some matches and, you know, beat some decent players. And um, I played soccer my freshman year of high school. And the funny story about that is I, I had already stopped playing soccer. Like eighth grade was the last year I played like for a club team. And my freshman year, like I was the only guy who made the soccer team at our school who didn't play club soccer. And literally the only reason I found out years later, the only reason my dad let, even let me try out for soccer was he didn't think I was going to make the team because I had stopped playing because I had stopped playing like club a year before, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, he knew that, you know, that my school was really competitive in soccer. They were one of the best teams in San Diego. And he, you know, he knew that guys from the, best clubs in San Diego were playing there. So he was like, no shot. And he wanted me to focus on tennis <laughs> at that point. And so it became, you know, a period of, you know, three or four months in my freshman year when I had to do, you know, tennis and soccer. And it just became, yeah, it became too much of a challenge. And at that point I had kind of, I had the soccer out of my system. So after that I was, you know, full-time tennis and, you know, traveling throughout Southern California and playing some of the, you know, the bigger events, uh, you know, Fiesta Bowl, some of those other, um, you know, zonals, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I uh, I got a great I got a great sort of deal of competition in the Southern California because I had so many. I, first of all, I had so many guys in my high school who were really good players, like guys who were. You know, we had a few. We had probably had three or four guys in my school who were like top fifteen, like in the country. Um, wow. So we had we had great practices. Uh, we had great like guys at our disposal every day to walk across. I went to the University of San Diego High School across the street from the University of San Diego. And so literally every day we could just walk across the street, go to the courts there, practice with each other. We could, you know, the coach at USD would sort of help us, you know, give us feedback. Um, it was a great environment to play and a great environment to get better. And I was someone who, you know, the whole time, like, was just someone who was dying to get better and ended up making myself into a decent player. Love that, Mark. Yeah, I mean, one one key to success is surrounding yourself with uh, you know, people who are doing really well and who can help you out. And I think that's just a fantastic environment, especially, I mean, this is, that's incredible that you had like 
several people on your high school team that were top 15 in the country like that. I don't know. I feel like that's unheard of, but um, that, that's pretty amazing. And then when you shifted to to the uh, to the East Coast to go and, and play for Boston College, like uh, I'm just, I was just curious, you know, being from the West Coast, like how much of a change was that for you? Yeah, it was a change. I had never competed indoors before. Mm-hmm. Um, I sort of had to get used to this thing. Like I don't know if you you might you might get this, but um, being in Southern California, I feel like most of the players look like good players. Most of the guys who are pretty good look like they're good players. Mm-hmm. And going to the Northeast for whatever reason, I started seeing all these players who you know, had ugly strokes and who were much, much scrappier and who just didn't look like, they didn't look like good ball strikers. And, but they ended up being really good competitors, which was a lesson for me. They ended up being good competitors and tough guys to beat. And I, for a while, it was really hard for me to wrap my head around because like in Southern California, like in, in, in this part of the world, I felt it was pretty easy to size somebody up pretty quickly. Like you just take a couple, take a look at them hitting a couple of balls and you had a pretty quick idea about, you know, about what to expect. And, I guess maybe it's just a thing for college tennis in general, but going, you know, my freshman year, it was a little bit of an adjustment period. And I guess I learned I needed to be ready to, to respect more competitors mm-hmm. and to be ready to, you know, be ready to play my best from the very beginning, regardless of who was on the other side of the net. I think that was a good learning experience for me. Yeah. That's so funny. You mentioned that. Cause I played a, uh, a USA league match, I think like last month, well, I played several, but this one in particular, uh, in the five O leagues. And then, uh, this is, there was this new guy who came on to play singles and I, I looked at him and, you know, I hate to like stereotype, but I, I saw him and, and he was supposed to be playing singles against like a, a really good player. And I thought, Oh my gosh, like this guy's going to get destroyed. And then he ended up winning. And I, I just, I just <laughs> couldn't believe like, uh, you know, just from looking at him. So that's just kind of made me think of, uh, you know, when you mentioned that, but, uh, it's definitely good to not judge a book by its cover, which I'm, you know, I'm glad that you learned and I've I continually <laughs> learned there. But, um, you know, something that's really interesting too in your background is that you, you know, you're obviously a very successful tennis coach, but you studied economics, uh, at, at Boston College and then you actually went on to law school for a year before quote coming to your senses which as a practicing attorney you know that that's, that's pretty funny actually but uh i work for the government it's different but uh so, so i was curious um uh when and how did you end up deciding to become a tennis coach after the you know a different path in schooling yeah it's funny i i was very i mean i studied econ like you said i loved it i like numbers and i like just I like everything I studied in economics. I like studying developing economies and I like dealing with statistics and those sorts of things. And then I ended up going to law school for a year. I did not like what I was doing there. And it was just so much gray area to me. I didn't like the idea of, you know, I, I didn't like, I didn't like case law. I didn't like taking a justice's opinion and sort of picking out the parts I liked and then pointing like, using that to support what I wanted it to support. I, I felt that was so subjective. Mm-hmm. And after a year in school, I was kind of figuring out what I was going to do next. I told my dad that I think I wanted to stop and he told me I could stop, but I needed to have a plan in place. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really come up with one. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I ended up taking a summer job where I took a few kids to Europe and they played tournaments. And so I did that. That was like a month and I came back and I stopped in Boston to see a friend of mine and all of a sudden, it was like, geez, I'm going to be in California in four days. I'm going to see my dad, and he's going to ask what's going on. And so I just sort of 
had hit the panic button. I was like, what can I do to sort of buy some time? So I thought that, you know, I thought that one of the easiest things to get into would be, you know, would be coaching tennis. And so I went on the NCAA website. I was looking at what sort of job openings were going on. And literally the first opening I saw was at Princeton, which goes back even further. Princeton was a school that my dad made me apply to. I didn't really want to go there. I didn't want to apply there. My dad made me apply. I got on the wait list and he, um, he was like, you know, you want to wait and see what happens. You want to stay on the wait list. And I was like, dad, I was like, if they're not taking me the first time, there's no way in hell that I want to wait. And <laughs> I'm not going to let them take me the second time. There's no way. So years later, I'm seeing this application that's you know there for Princeton, and I'm like, oh, perfect. My dad's going to love this. I'm going to tell him that I have something working. This will buy me a few weeks. I have zero, I have zero intention of actually falling through with it. <laughs> Lo and behold, you know, I got an email back from the new head coach at Princeton. She's so I liked her resume. Let's talk on the phone. We, you know, we spoke on the phone, and I'm in my mind thinking, I just need to drag this out, like drag this process out, <laughs> tell my dad I have something working, and, you know, in a couple of weeks, I can really, you know, I can think and I really figure out what I want to do, and I got home to San Diego in August, it's the first week of August, maybe, and the head coach, no, this, this has to be the end of July, so, and the head coach is like, listen, Nationals is right around the corner. I need an answer from you in like the next two days. And I'm like, Oh my God. So I ended up, I was working out one day with my trainer my former trainer and he gave me some great advice. And he's like, listen, what's the worst thing that happens? Like, you don't like it. You come home in a few months, you know, no big deal. Why don't you just try it? And so I was like, you know what? You're right. And so I said like, let's freaking do it. And I ended up committing on the phone. Um, the next day, I drove to the University of San Diego, asked for the NCA bylaws, <laughs> and uh, I took my recruiting trip later that day, or excuse me, my, my recruiting test for Princeton later that day. I passed it, <laughs> and then nice. uh, two days later, I was on a plane to recruit at Girls Nationals for Princeton University. Wow. Wow, that's Crazy. incredible. That's Yeah, that's and then, then I got to Princeton, and I ended up loving what I was doing, and I thought, this is something I want to actually do. Wow. Good stuff, yeah. Mark. And then, so, so I mean, that's re really incredible, and I'm glad it worked out. And then, like, how how long did you actually end up staying at Princeton before the next job? Yes, yeah, so I was at Princeton for three seasons, for three school years, and I, you know, I loved my time there. It was a great town. I got to work with Kathy Sell, who, you know, she was starting her time as the head coach there when I was starting, and so we were both starting brand new. The previous coach had been there for like 25 years, so we were sort of starting a new era. And we were, you know, maybe not her, but I was totally learning on the job. I had never really coached seriously before. You know, I'd done like summer camps and things like that, but that's kind of babysitting. And this was a time to sort of just learn about the coaching profession, figure out what kind of coach I wanted to be and sort of determine the good ways that I was coached. And then the areas that I sort of would want to improve based on how I was coached. And so I was there for three years. After about three years, I thought I kind of might have had enough of tennis, right? To sort of figure something out. I thought tennis was out of my system. I went back to San Diego and I, same thing, took a summer job to try to like buy some time, try to bridge a gap. And I ended up taking a job for a summer with a girl that we had recruited at Princeton. She ended up going to USC, but you know, we had recruited her pretty hard and I've developed a good relationship with the family. And I worked with her every day for a summer and I was like, wow, this private coaching, I really like it. You know, being able to spend all my time with one player 
it was, this is really cool. I think I want to keep trying this. And then that led to a job with a pro player, a girl that was coaching some tournaments, sort of, I guess, got my name through the grapevine. And that kind of set me off and running, led me down the path that I am now. Oh, good stuff, Mark. And so one thing that you mentioned when you were at Princeton, you kind of learned uh, what you had to improve upon. And I was wondering if you could maybe like name a couple of those things where where looking back, I guess that's, you know, you had to improve upon certain aspects of your uh, your coaching. Yeah, I've always sort of, one thing I constantly need to be aware of is the energy I bring to the court. My my vibe can be very laid back or very chill, and that's California. not <laughs> California. It's it's not always it's not always the best for players. And my body language, so I I constantly have to be aware of that. And I think when I am on a court, I think at this point, like players will will feel my presence much more than you know. If I look back at the Princeton days, I'm like, geez, like what was I doing? Um, just because because I was learning and you know learning just things simple things like how close to the court like i should be standing or how close to the player i should be standing or the way that i need to address a player when we're doing a drill or the way i need to address players when they're playing matches or the feedback they need to hear when they're actually you know while they're competing all that stuff like i was learning i had never really i mean i guess in college i was coaching the five line too but you know i i had a coach in college i had two coaches in college and i don't i wouldn't the second one i wouldn't call someone who I would want to be like really. So I had, so I had to kind of basically do everything the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was just something that, you know, it it was cool because there were like, I had some great coaches when I was in juniors when I was in San Diego. And so I got to take some things from them and I would sometimes lean on them and ask, you know, I'd call them and Hey, when we were doing this, what was the reason, you know, that we, that you explained it this way or, or or what do you think I need to do in this situation? And so they've been resources for me. And and that's a kind of one thing This I guess segues a different direction, but one of the things like I've done throughout my whole career is try to seek out people with more experience than myself and literally bug the crap out of them, asking them questions about tennis and about coaching and about players. And I, you know, when I worked for the USTA, that was something that was really easy for me to do because they were, you know, in the office next to me or on court next to me, but working privately now, it's something that I have to sort of seek out and create this sort of infrastructure for myself. But I still, you know, I love to do it and I love to learn. It's, I think it's the academic side of me. I'm constantly trying to learn and, and seeking new information. So I, uh, you know, to this day, like there's, you know, there's things on court that I'm trying to work on as a coach. Love it, Mark. Yeah, as they say, you're the uh, product of the five people you spend the most time with. So, uh, particularly like that piece of advice there, and uh, and that's what I'm doing with the podcast: bugging the crap out of people <laughs> like you, man, <laughs> to learn from you. So, I appreciate that. And uh, you you mentioned the USTA as well. So, where does that fit in with uh, with all the coaching gigs that you've had? Yeah. So after I worked with, so after I left Princeton, I got the, you know, the job, like working with my first pro player. She was a player who was maybe ranked, you know, 500, 400 in the world, that sort of thing. Like she was playing challenger level events and, but that got me sort of exposure at the pro level. And I was with her for a few months and she did pretty well. And as things go, like, it's so funny, like the, the way I eventually got a job at the USTA and the way this sort of thing happened was I was at a tournament with her. I think I was in Toronto and I was signing up for this brand new thing called Facebook. <laughs> I was I was uh, I was literally online in a hotel room. This you know Facebook had just been opened up to people with 
email addresses other than you know .edu. It, was, it had just been sort of opened up to the general public, and I had held off because it was such like a thing that people younger than me were doing. But you know, things you do when you're bored in the road. And so I signed up for Facebook, and one of the people that I sent and a friend invite to was a guy named David Roditi, who at the mm -hmm. time was running the Carson Center. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny because within maybe about 30 minutes, I got a message back from David saying, hey, Mark, I've been trying to get your contact information. Can you send me your phone number? And, you know, eventually, you know, we spoke and blah, blah. He was like, listen, we're trying to really expand the programming at Carson. We want to start a brand new junior program. And we need a few part-time coaches is something you might be interested in. And that was sort of how it all started. And that got me in the door with the USTA. And I ended up being with the USTA in Carson for about five years. After a few years, I got promoted to national coach. And yeah, I really, I enjoyed my time at the USTA very much. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. So, uh, yeah, I think it pays to friend people, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> no, that's fantastic. And I mean, it uh, was an unbelievable environment. Like for me as a young coach to be around people that I could learn from every day and to be around good players and to, to be in an environment that really pushed me because I think good players push you to be better on court and to be able to get feedback from coaches after practices and even during practices. Like it was an environment that was, it was tough because there were times when it was really stressful and, it was, you know, would make you sort of anxious as a coach and very sort of you'd feel under the gun. But I feel like this is, you know, they say, like, that's how you make diamonds. Uh, that's mm -hmm. sort of how um, I think I got better as a coach. For sure, Mark. And uh, just comparing, like, uh, teaching, like, I guess on the road with a professional tennis player versus in a more, uh, like, group environment, like, what, what are some of the biggest adjustments that you have to make in order to be successful uh, in the pro-professional uh, environment? Yeah, I, I think there's a difference between, like, there's teaching and coaching. That's one of the things that Jose Higueras always kind of told us when we were at USTA. Like, there's, you know, you first you're a teacher, then you're a coach. And depending on the stage the player is at, you might do more teaching than coaching, or you might do more coaching than teaching. With pro players, the most, the majority of your time is spent actually coaching them, which is like refining areas of their game, which is sort of instructing them, you know, maybe how to deploy the their skill set, working on tactics, working on patterns of play, working on putting them in position to be successful as much as possible, putting the, having them in positions on the court where they can be successful and do what they're really good at. With with other players. You're doing, you know, with players newer to the game or players maybe that aren't quite as established, you're doing a lot more teaching. You're doing a lot more, you know, fundamentals. You're doing a lot more stroke production. You're doing a lot more, like, actually teaching elementary patterns of play. And it's actually really fun doing both. And I don't like one maybe more than the other. I pretty much like being on court with whoever is on the other side of the net if they're paying attention and if they really want to be there. I'm equally happy working with a high school player who's dialed in as I am working with a pro player. Um, that's, I think, you know, I think one thing probably most coaches would say that. Um, I think teaching requires you to be really good at what you do and to have a strong knowledge. Actually, I mean, probably both areas re require really strong knowledge, but I think a lot of people will sort of gravitate towards coaching better players if they're not quite as good at the teaching part, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And because I because I, I really think it's really difficult to sort of teach to teach really good fundamentals. I think is hard, and I think it takes a lot of it takes a lot of knowledge and patience. And I think a lot of people that 
do the actual coaching of like good, better players, I think, um, maybe aren't quite as adept at that. And, you know, I don't know. I don't think it's, I don't think one's better than the other, but I, I will say that, you know, cause people a lot of times will want to put the best coaches with the best players. And I don't necessarily think that's the best thing. I'd rather, I, you know, if I were to have, you know, my own program, which we sort of do, um, I think it's really beneficial to have good coaches working with the newest players. But the caveat, going back to what we spoke about in the beginning, is it has to be really fun. And so if you have good coaches who can't make it fun, that's a problem also. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, one thing, too, I mean, you know, <laughs> this may be kind of funny, but. You know, in thinking uh, about like, you know, future, like an ideal future, sometimes I think, wow, it would be really cool to coach professional players and be a commentator on ESPN. And all of a sudden I think, oh, wait, I think I know somebody. Uh, his name's Mark <laughs> Lucero. <laughs> so living the dream in a lot of people's eyes. So in uh, thinking about the 80-20 rule, uh, what are maybe a couple key things that you either learned or did to help you reach uh, this stage where you're uh, where you're coaching pros and and commentating on ESPN and and so forth. That's a tough question. Um, sure. So I I guess the number one thing that I have always sort of tried to do again and and we kind of just went over it is I've tried to seek out people that mm-hmm. do things better than I do and have more experience better than I do and to be around them and to learn from them as much as I can and to ask them questions and I think that has really, I think that's helped me, you know, it's helped me tremendously. And I think earlier in my career, I did a lot of stuff for free. You know, I did, Mm -hmm. I spent extra time on court where I wasn't getting paid. I spent, you know, I'd go to the office or the courts on days when I wasn't getting paid just because I want to be around it and be around the people there and and to learn, you know, going to tournaments and not getting paid. Like, you know, when I was working in California earlier, Again, like just because I wanted the experience of doing it, um, and you know that sacrifice that you know those I guess those various sacrifices, have, you know, I think have sort of paid off because I sort of showed people around me how how hungry I was, and at the same time, all that time benefited my knowledge base, hopefully. <laughs> um, but uh, I think that's and, and I've sort of taken the same approach to doing the TV stuff. Mm-hmm. I've tried to seek people out that I think are really good on air and same thing, ask them, Hey, did you hear the broadcast? Do you have any feedback for me? Is it what, what can I do better? Hey, do you mind if I send you this clip? Can you tell me what you think about it? Um, every producer I've worked with, I've followed up with an email and mm-hmm. said, Hey, can you give me some feedback? Tell me what you thought. And so I sort of bring the same approach to that. And I, in general, I like to, I like to have feedback, whatever it is I do, if it's tennis or the TV or if it's, yoga or whatever i'm asking the people that know what they're doing hey how do i do this better and i like to practice i like to learn and i think that i don't think that's how we get better at everything witness history at roland garros where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground tennis channel plus is your place to watch stream every court from your phone or smart tv live in hd Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Wow, that's so huge and and so powerful. I really appreciate you mentioning that. And so I'm sure that, uh, you know, like, 
when you ask people for feedback, it probably wasn't like a hundred percent success rate, right? But I I, I know right. that a lot of people they're kind of scared that they're going to ask, and then somebody will like say no, or or they think in their mind that the the person they're asking is is going to think like, oh, why would I even help this mm-hmm. person or whatever? But so so yeah, I mean like just to reiterate, like I I mean how often were you like either how often did you not get a response or did you get yeah. a no from that? Sometimes, yeah, sometimes that happens. Um, I, I was really fortunate because I was surrounded by some people who did care and who did find the time to give me feedback. I remember sitting in, you know, one of the offices in Carson with Tom Gullickson and David Roditi, and, and these guys were like, listen, if you want to move up, like, try to approach it more professionally. Like, instead of wearing that t-shirt, why don't you wear a match shirt, wear a collared shirt to practice, you know, like, send that message. And, and that sort of thing, you know, that's just one example. But, you know, the, the, yeah, there have been people where, you know, hey, you know, can you tell me how that was? And like, yeah, it was fine. That's about it, which is totally like the least helpful thing ever, like saying, yeah, it was great or yeah, it was fine. And just kind of blowing you off like and that doesn't help me at all. I know it wasn't, you know, um, but I think you find whatever it is like in whatever it is you're doing, whatever field it is, you'll get a feel from certain people pretty quickly um, if they will, you know, on, on if they want to sort of talk more. And generally, people that are really into what they're doing love to talk about it. And especially I think in tennis, like tennis coaches love to talk tennis. And so when I have been around certain people, you know, whoever it is, like I feel like the door is pretty open, especially, you know, if you get a good vibe from them just conversing, like, you know, and I'm always happy to talk tennis with people and to talk about sort of my experiences. But, you know, the people that I've been around on the tennis court, like, you know, the, the older coaches I've been around love to talk tennis and, there's never been there haven't been too many moments where I've gone into a situation maybe thinking I was gonna get feedback and that didn't happen usually I'll have usually if you get have a good sense of people you can you know filter out the good ones from the ones who maybe won't give you feedback pretty quickly mm, great stuff and speaking to dressing professionally I mean I've, I've seen your Instagram page and uh, you know the, <laughs> the fashion knowledge that you have and uh, at Mark Lucero <laughs> Uh, check it out. So uh, yeah, that was a fun video there. But yeah, you definitely, uh, I think people are digging your style, which is pretty cool. But um, so <laughs> what? Yeah, sure. And, and one thing uh, we've been talking about your successes, which have been fantastic, of course. But I was just curious. Um, and this kind of helps people empathize a lot of the time. I mean, what has been maybe in your estimation like one of the lowest points in your career, and then how have you been able to to bounce back from that? Hmm, tough question. Um, well, I think, I mean, in pro sports, you know, everybody gets fired. Yeah. And there have been, you know, there have been moments when players have said, listen, I don't think we should work together anymore. And sometimes I felt the same way. Sometimes I didn't feel the same way. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same in anything when you're thinking about, geez, I just lost my job, essentially. Now, what am I going to do next? There's some sort of you know, there can be some sort of panic, there can be some sort of like anxiety, there can be some sort of freedom of rebirth also. Um, I think there's probably, you know, a lot of times mixed feelings. And, you know, out of those moments, I think if you can figure out how to sort of reset your goals or to, you know, reacquaint yourself with your goals, I think that's how you figure out the direction you need to go. And from there, it's just sort of putting the word out and then, I think believing in believing in yourself, believing in your abilities, and then not being too um, not being too proud to take something that you might think is not quite 
um, for your level, you know, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes pride can get in the way. Sometimes, sometimes blessings happen in disguise. And I, there's a number of, there's a number of college jobs that I did not get that I applied for when I was working for the USTA, even like college assistant jobs that I didn't get that, man, if I think now if I had gotten them, like there's no way I would be where I am now. And these were blessings in disguise, but at the time they were really disappointing and I probably would have taken any of those jobs. And luckily things broke a certain way for me. And I think everything, you know, I don't know if everything happens for a reason, but I, you know, I, I think these are opportunities disguised as, you know, little mini failures. Sure. Yeah. And you learn from each one and keep going like you did. And, uh, that's, that's fantastic. Curious too, you know, we talk about how coaches are let go from players or vice versa. And of course we've been hearing about that quite a bit lately. Uh, I was curious, like when, when a coach is let go, um, like what avenues, you know, you said to you, you try to get the word out, like, is there like a database or something that you say, Hey, I, I'm no longer employed and like, I'm seeking work or like, how do you actually get the word out and what platforms? Yeah, I wish there were a database. That'd be great. Uh, no, um, Sven Grunfeld actually has a company called Orange Coach now, which he's tr- sort of trying to provide that, sort of be a a platform that facilitates players and coaches finding each other, which is a great idea because, as you know, in tennis, transparency isn't the strongest uh, suit of tennis. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like you said, this time of year is when changes happen between players and coaches, sometimes initiated by the player, sometimes initiated by the coach, sometimes mutual. So what happens is after that, after you know one side provides the other some sort of notice, the, that's when the agents get involved. And you know, if, this, if, if it were me, I would email you know, probably every agent in my phone book or text or whatever. And, you know, you let them know, Hey, I'm no longer working with so-and-so mm-hmm. I'm interested in X, Y, and Z. I'm interested in a player like this or a player like that, or, you know, a male or female, whatever it is. I'm interested in full-time. I'm interested in something part-time. This is where I'm based. You give them the essential details. And then from there, if depending on, I guess what their the situations that their players are, you know, the conversation may go further. The conversation may stop there, or they might direct you, Hey, listen, you know, I don't have anything now, but so-and-so might maybe reach out to him. And that's kind of where it starts. I think they're the best resource for sort of starting that process. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's and great. now with social media, I mean, you, some of these people will just like throw it out there on Twitter and you know, <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> like, true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. And don't yeah. get me started on that. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe for another episode. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I know your time's limited, Mark, so I've got uh, some other questions for you. So one of them is, uh, is the financial arrangement uh, between coach and player. Like, I was just curious, uh, and my viewers as well, is, is that usually like a percentage of the winnings or uh, a fixed salary? Um, I think you see both, and you see a combination of both. Mm. Uh, every... Again, this is sort of one of the things like the tennis, there's like not really a lot of transparency. It's not like, you know, Major League Baseball where the USA Today prints every player and coach's salary, um, which is actually a great thing because then you know what, you know, you know what your peers and your competitors are making. And then you can sort of leverage that to make a good deal for yourself. And tennis is different and that stuff, that information is all closely held. So usually... You know, there's some, it also depends on the level your player, player is playing at, but mm-hmm. at the tour level, there's usually a combination of a base and then some incentive and a structure for incentives. Gotcha. Gotcha. Very interesting. Um, as far as uh, coaching, I mean, I know there's a lot of 
a lot of different aspects of it. But coaching on the tour, what is the hardest part about that uh, for you? I think the hardest part about coaching on the tour is making sure, I guess there's two parts. One is making sure you have enough time to ensure that the player's development continues. Mm -hmm. I think on the tour, it can be really easy to get caught up in this, you know, this sort of uh, gray area where all you're doing is sort of game planning and then you're doing sort of maintenance work. And, you know, usually that happens, that actually happens if the player is doing pretty well and playing a lot of matches. It's really difficult to make the time to actually practice and to make sure you're doing, you know, the things you need to do to continue adding to the player's game, to continue sort of, you know, adding wrinkles or, you know, adding weapons or refining weapons. That stuff can be tough. And to make sure you have that time is, it's, I think, crucial because if you're not improving, you know, everyone else is improving. Mm-hmm, for sure, Mark. so you're you're falling behind. The second thing probably is making sure that you're doing enough to take care of yourself. Like that, I'm doing enough mm-hmm. to make sure I get my workouts in, to make sure mm-hmm. like I'm doing my mindfulness and keeping my mind right. Because if I don't do a good job taking care of myself, I'm gonna end up doing a crappy job for my player. Because I'm gonna get, you know, I'm gonna get irritable. I'm gonna get cranky. I'm gonna get tired during trips. Like, and, and that's no good. I need to be able to have good energy. I need to be able to be focused. I need to be able to not react when I get like, you know, poked or provoked or whatever. I need to be the one who stays cool and, you know, not have this combustible situation. So I think, you know, being able to sort of put yourself first, even though it's very easy in our business to put yourself second. And that's kind of eventually it's a large part of what you want to do is put yourself second because, you know, it's not your career, it's their career. Um, and you want to help them maximize their games. It's not about us. It's not about, you know, um, it's not about us being on camera. It's about them doing really well in the big moments and, you know, us playing a supportive role. But in order to do that well, we need to put ourselves first in certain aspects. And that means, you know, taking care of ourselves, eating right, working mm-hmm. out, like doing stuff that we enjoy also so that, you know, we're in a good frame of mind and a good place to help them. Yeah, I really love that point among many others you've you've brought up today. I mean, in reading a lot of um, like self-development uh, books for myself, like that's actually a lot of the first step a lot of the time is just like taking care of your body and your mind and things like that. And so I have my own morning routine. And so I was actually going to ask you too, I mean, do you have like either a nightly or a uh, morning routine to uh, get you, uh, you know, ready to go? Yeah, Um so I travel. I have a couple. I have a pretty, I have a pretty good morning routine. I will say. Awesome. So I I I travel everywhere with my Magic Bullet blender, mm-hmm. and so in the morning I love to get up and I make my coffee and I put my different you know supplements and ingredients in the coffee, throw it in the blender, and enjoy my coffee. Like that's my everywhere in the world I take it, and everywhere in the world you know I do this. So I'll have my coffee. I'll do a few minutes of mindfulness. I have an app I like to use. I'll do a little mindfulness and then I'll try to do some mobility, like some light stretching, some, you know, foam roll, whatever, use the hypervolt, whatever it is. That's kind of how I like to start the day. If I have time, I'll work out. If not, I'll work out later. But that's how I like to get into the day. And I feel like that sort of provides um, an element of stability and sort of, or I guess sameness in a life that sort of lacks stability or, is sort of different every week or can be different every week. 
Wonderful. I love that. That's a fantastic uh, routine. And yeah, I'll do that. Well, I guess not the magic bullet, but I like to wake up and then uh, do some form of exercise, uh, take a, a cold shower, meditate, and then journal for a bit. But um, Oh, nice. It, yeah, yeah, it really helps because I mean, I, I wake up feeling like I just had a lobotomy, you know, most mornings. I just like, don't know what the heck's going on. But, uh, but yeah, so that's, that's great stuff. And, um, so, uh, as far as like, um, you know, traveling everywhere, you, you did mention your routine, but are there any other, uh, things that you do or, or bring with you to stay comfortable, uh, while you're traveling? Cause I know like that's uh, for a lot of people, like traveling is the hardest part of coaching. Yeah. Um, playing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so I like to bring, you know, I take all my supplements everywhere, all the powders and all the shakers and all the different things. Um, I do that. I love, I swear by my, my um, compression socks on flights. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and if, it, if it flies over, like, oh, if it's over three hours, I'm going to wear my compression socks. They're like knee highs. They basically, um, they're tight socks and they make sure the blood keeps flowing. You can get pants or whatever. I just go socks. But, um, my it, it makes a difference. I don't arrive with cankles, and I feel like my, my legs feel like they're my legs feel like they're ready to go. Like I can go, I can get off the plane in Europe and practice. Whereas before, like my legs would feel real like heavy, and um, that's kind of what another thing I do. I'll travel with my I travel with a um, a reusable water bottle. You know, one of those swell metal um, mm-hmm. water bottles, and I'll fill it up in the airport lounge and try to reduce my impact, less plastic, and also make sure I stay hydrated on the plane. That's another thing. Um, that's, I mean, those, those are it. I mean, otherwise, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I like to take with me. Um, I have a lacrosse ball I keep in my bag that help me work out some kinks, do some trigger point therapy stuff. Um, oh, and if there's a, if there's a city with Soul Cycle in it, I take my cycling shoes with me. Nice, man. Those are hard <laughs> yeah. classes. I've I've only taken actually uh, two of them, but those are intense. Really, that tough. was my favorite. And, and then, like during during the U.S. Open, I was probably going like like four times a week, five times a week. Wow. Yeah, but only with my shoes. You know, I, I don't want to be in someone else's sweaty shoes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I I totally get that. I'm a clean freak as well. <laughs> uh, good stuff. Um, also, you know, of course, uh, shout out to Shelby Rogers. I mean, you're coaching her and i uh, actually just uh, earlier today watched a clip of, of her like a few months ago in charleston where she got emotional after the win so i was wondering if you could just we both t- got emotional yeah Jeez. well that's true yeah i'm sure that you were as well i mean it's a big <laughs> moment but i was wondering like just um you know how tough it is uh to to you know be coaching a player when they're going through injury and like the types of things that you all just try to focus to to get her back uh you know in shape for the tour yeah, it's really difficult. It's a period where, you know, you're you, you're usually the one who sort of provides the positive outlook, and you're the one who provides the who can chart the course sort of for where the player is trying to go in their career, and you provide the path, you provide the developmental plan, mm-hmm. and then when basically a career-threatening injury happens, you, all of a sudden you are the one who has no idea what's going on because. Yeah. You know, I'm not a doctor. Like, I have no idea about some of this stuff. So I try to, you know, I try to educate myself as much as I can. But when it comes time to start, you know, dealing with it, we're relying on someone whose knowledge is an area that you know, neither one of us really knows a lot about. So, you know, w- what I sort of tried to do was surround ourselves, you know, along with the help of a couple other people I trusted to surround ourselves with the best possible people that can help us. 
and you know putting from putting a good medical team in place to you know seeking out the best people in the country to deal with you know the the injury that she had and then find the best rehab situation you know i tried to sort of just be you know someone who was there no matter what and to be someone that was going to help get answers if she couldn't find them or if they were unsatisfactory and if that meant like if that meant pestering the doctor or pestering the physical therapist or somebody you know, to get the actual final answer, like I was ready to be the bad guy and to do, you know, and to do whatever it took. Um, there was, um, you know, there was one point, <laughs> there was one point during the rehab, literally when, you know, in the middle of the rehab, you just feel like you've been doing it for so long. And for her, especially it's, you know, it's really tough for her because she is doing, the, she has a groundhog day every day. She's doing the same thing over and over again. Rehabbing is boring. Rehabbing gets tired. And then she, you know, we were hitting about 30 minutes a day and as the coach, sometimes yeah, you know, you're not the one in pain, but it can almost be worse because you're the one who, you know, literally is doing nothing, and then until the time it comes to go to the court, and then you go to the court and you toss some balls around, and it's you know it's the, it's the best part of her day. It's actually you know it's the best part of my day too because we got to be in the court. Mm-hmm. Um, but going back to what I was saying, there was one point during the rehab where, you know, it just seemed like the process was going was was going so long. Like I actually booked myself a flight. I flew to New York, went straight to the doctor's office and met with the physical therapist who we saw post-surgery. And I'm like, listen, dude, this is what's happening. Like, what do I do? And, and as usual, you know, these guys who know what they're, you know, know what they're doing was like, listen, like it's a process, you know, you need to calm down, you need to be patient, you need to adjust, you know, X, Y, and Z, you know, so you can do this, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, hearing that, that steady voice that used to be me, now with somebody else just because it was their area of expertise. And so I got to lean on them a little bit and it really helped us a lot, you know, doing what we were doing in the rehab in LA. And, you know, when, when she got to start hitting more and was doing more on court, it became really fun for both of us. And at the same time, like it was my job that then like sort of my job became important again. And it became up to me to sort of make sure that we're progressing at the right rate on court and make sure that, when she thinks she's ready to compete, that I know she's ready to compete and that I wasn't going to let her go out in court to a tournament until I knew she was ready and not just ready to play one match, but ready to play multiple matches. And I think that's, that's an issue you'll see with a lot of players comebacks. You see a lot of players who might come back too quickly. And, you know, my biggest goal from the beginning was to put her in a position to sort of be successful and not just come back as her body says she could, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm really glad that she, you know, she has such a, uh, you know, caring and also, uh, you know, intelligent coach and they're respected. A lot of players, they, um, you know, they feel like they can come back, but I mean, you have to really remember that, like, you're, you're, you're at much higher risk to where, like, do, do you want to actually, like, play a little bit and then re-injure and then maybe never play again, or do you want to come back fully, uh, ready to go? So, um, so I really appreciate that outlook that you had there, uh, in guiding her and, uh, it, you know, you you have done a lot of a lot of great things. In addition to your coaching, um, you uh, co-founded Ramp Tennis, which is a, a tennis training uh, program for junior players. So I was wondering if you could talk about like what motivated you to create this program uh, and what what it is all about. Yeah, so a few years back, myself and a couple other people, we started a program called Ramp Tennis. We wanted to do something impactful in the community. We saw sort of a an empty space, I guess, and an empty place in the market for people that were teaching tennis at a pretty good level and who, people that would do a good job with young players. That's what we wanted to do. We wanted to take young players and put good fundamentals in the beginning so that 
coaches didn't have to do the remedial stuff later. Like when we would see kids, even at the USTA, we would see kids at 13, 14, 15, 16 who would have messed up grips and their swings would be weird and stuff that stuff that would limit them to play at a higher level, whether it's college or pros or whatever. So we want to try to find a way to make an impact on kids at a younger age and to teach them the right, the right way so that whatever their goals were, they would not be limited by things that could have been avoided. And over time, we just found it a little bit challenging to get people to come down to Carson. And we sort of thought about, you know, where we were, which was a community that is, you know, not the most economically viable community. It's a community where, you know, there's a large percentage of people who, you know, who don't make a lot of money and who maybe struggle to, you know, to find good jobs Mm -hmm. and families where it's not normal to go to college. And we thought about, geez, we're in this place. Why don't we help the people that are right around us? And so Ramp basically became or it evolved into becoming First Break Mm -hmm. Academy, which is a nonprofit 501c3 um, organization that we were able to actually dive into that mission and provide tennis to people in the community, you know, take away finances like as a barrier to entry. And basically if a kid wanted to participate, like we have a racket for them and Hey, guess what? The child doesn't have shoes. You know, we're going to get you shoes. We're going to get you clothes and we're going to, you know, Hey, that, that head racket that you have. Yeah, you can keep it. Um, through the help of a lot of partners, we're able to do that and we're able to provide that for kids. And, you know, we started actually a multi-sport program where children can sign up. They can come get coaching in tennis and basketball and in some parts of the year, tennis, soccer, and basketball, and then they'll get help with their schoolwork after. And that sometimes is a little bit easier transition to tennis than just coming, hey, you know, come play tennis for two hours a couple times a week. Like for someone that's never played tennis before, especially in, you know, a community where there's not a lot of exposure to tennis, it can be a little bit intimidating. So we wanted to try to develop a, a program where it was less intimidating. They could come do things with their friends and, you know, where they got to do a bunch of different activities. And that's where the multi-sports come in. And also, like, it's part of it's our belief. And Pam Shriver was actually instrumental in starting this program. Pam's one of our, you know, uh, our biggest and most important supporters. Mm-hmm. Tennis players benefit from just a multi-sport background in general. You see the best athletes in the world, the best mm-hmm. tennis players, all played multiple sports as kids. And so we wanted to bring that to tennis. And we didn't, you know, nobody was doing that. And so we've been able to do, you know, to do this program, which is new and fun. And, you know, hopefully we're doing, you know, hopefully people see us as a good neighbor. We want to be a good neighbor in our community. And we want to, like for us, the biggest win would be somebody being the first in their family to go to college and for them not having to pay for it. That, that, that'd be a win. Or for someone, some kid to stay in school longer and high school longer because they're playing on the tennis team or they're playing on the soccer team, but you know, the, you know what the lessons they learned in tennis, you know, the independence, the character, the self-reliance, the hard work, like that those lessons are serving them. And they're, you know what, kids are statistically more likely to stay in school if they play sports or kids more, more likely to achieve higher because they play sports. If those things happen, like those are all wins for us. So, you know, they don't need to be champions in tennis, but we want to try to create champions off the court. And I think we're on a good path to doing that. Wow. I mean, I just have to really, you know, uh, just recognize you uh, and, and the the rest of the team for this. Like, I love that you are doing this and it's just an incredible way to give back to the sport that we all love uh, by helping those who are less fortunate get into the game. Uh, so just, we've all gotten so much from tennis. Yeah. You know, I mean, my own life and the lives of, you know, my co-founders 
Um, we're so lucky to be in LA and to have relationships with the pro players here. I mean, I can't tell you how many times, well, I can tell you like the amount of times that someone has said no to us, you know, the pro players like Stevie Johnson, Sam Query, you know, Shelby, Nicole Gibbs. Mm-hmm. I mean, Maria Sharapova has come out. The, the amount of times that we've heard no from these people asking them for something, I can probably count on, you know, one hand, I would probably say, wow. I'd basically say never. Like whenever we ask these people to come out, yes, when do you need me there? What time can I be there? Jared Donaldson, like, hey, Jared, you only need to be here for 30 minutes. Like, oh, I, I think I'm going to be here the whole time, the whole two hours. Like, it's it's amazing how these people these people are the selfless ones i mean for us like it's easy it's our program like this is what we want to do but for these other people who you know who have other things to do these pro players like it's just it's amazing every single time being able to count on them to be there and to be there for the kids like it's just such a cool thing for sure and i mean it's just a testament to to the value that you're providing i mean it's it's something that everybody can get behind and uh and and feel good about participating in so great great job there uh, also, uh yeah for sure and uh i know we've been going for a while but i just want to also uh you know ask you a couple other questions if it's okay um sure of course pre- appreciate it uh, so you, you i saw that you're also affiliated with uh top-notch fantasy tennis camps and i checked that out and it looked like a really cool event to to attend uh so i was just wondering you know if you could uh chat about that because i saw that there would be some pretty uh pretty big names attending that one yeah so we do um we do an event in maui called the top-notch fantasy camp it's a multi-day event i think it's five days we stay this year we're staying at the fairmont in Mauna Kea, I believe. And so, yeah, so it's a fancy camp. It's, you know, it's for adults. They can go there and they get coaching from Tracy Austin, Stevie Johnson, myself, and a couple more pros to be named later. Last year, Shelby Rogers went and Dennis Kudla. The year before, it was all of us and Riley Opelka also came. And it's drilling in the morning. The afternoon is sort of a, comp- a combination of drilling and competition. And it's such a cool thing because these pro players and Tracy and myself are actually on court doing the hands-on coaching, which I think is something you don't see. Like usually if you have a celebrity camp, it's like one player, you know, someone walking around and, you know, spitting out a few one-liners. But this is something where literally Stevie Johnson is there, like checking your forehand grip and making sure that, you know, the knuckles in the right place or, you know, Tracy Austin is there checking out, your swing pass on the backhand or, you know, checking out the contact point on your volley and literally hands on the racket, making sure you're doing it right. Um, and I'm there, you know, grinding, you know, teaching, you know, so-and-so how to get more topspin on the forehand, making sure the racket head speed is up. Like it's just, it's, it's hands-on in a way that I haven't seen before or I haven't been a part of. And it's, you know, it's great. There's an exhibition between the guys at the end last year, Stevie Johnson and Dennis Kudla played a set um, on the last day. There's a cocktail hour opening reception where, you know, the pro players and, and Tracy and myself are all there mingling and chatting. There's a final dinner, which is a great event. Um, there's plenty of pool time for yourself or, you know, any guests that come along. Um, and it's just, it's unbelievable to, that it goes on in November, which is, you know, time of year where most people are having a little bit cooler weather and in Maui, it's beautiful. There's, so much time on the court there's extra time if you want massage available there's a lot of cool things happening and there's you know there's plenty of time to sit around and and talk stories and to sort of hear anecdotes from 
you know, what it's like for Stevie to play Roger or when Tracy's out there playing Chris and Martina, what was going through her head or how, you know, how we see the modern game being played. There is just um, a lot of interaction, people hanging out in the pool after, you know, at the beach. And it's a really fun week. And I encourage anyone who wants to get their game better and um, wants to be around people that have done it at a high level and are currently doing it at a high level to check it out. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think it's a great event. I encourage any listeners to attend. It'd be, it'd be awesome. Awesome. Yeah, Mark, for sure. And uh, I will definitely... Oh, one more thing. Oh, I yeah. have one more thing. Sure. So anybody who signs up for that Top Notch Fantasy Camp, they're going to donate to First Break. They're going to give a portion of uh, that entry fee to First Break Academy, which is a huge thing. Top Notch is a partner of ours, and they've tried to figure out you know, how they can help us and support us. They've done cool things before, you know, giving kids opportunities to come to tournaments. Um, we're doing something like that for Indian Wells next year. We're going to have a bunch of kids come up and hang out in the Top Notch suite one night at the, tur- at the Indian Wells, which is so cool. But, um, yeah, they're a partner of ours, and they want to help us. And, you know, if we can get people to sign up, um, the kids are going to benefit because it's going to be an additional way for us to subsidize their cost. Wow, an amazing experience and also giving back to the community. I mean, they can't ask for more. And, uh, yeah, I'll definitely have all the links uh, mentioned in the show today, including uh, to First Break and uh, the Top Notch uh, Camps uh, on the show notes page. Um, so good stuff there. Uh, curious too, Mark, this question is also a little bit tough, at least for some guests, but what are three things, or I'm sorry, what are three books that you were, you would give to a friend to help them, uh, improve their tennis games? Okay. One would be the fighter's mind, Mm. which is a book that's actually about, uh, combat sports. So the writer, um, he goes to, I think it's maybe 12 different chapters. He goes to 12 different combat sports fighters, like a boxer, MMA guy, um, you know, Tai Chi, Jiu Jitsu. It's a by name. It's by a guy named Sam Sheridan. So he goes to visit maybe 12 or 13 different guys, a wrestler, and he talks to them about how they process competition, about how they deal with the idea of going out in this one-on-one endeavor and how they how they basically get their mind right how they deal with the fact that they might get their ass kicked how they deal with the fact that one guy's going to win one guy's going to go home hurt and i've never read anything before that was so applicable to the one-on-one competition of tennis so i think that book is fascinating i've recommended it to a bunch of different people and you know i just i think it's i think it's amazing um that's one book um winning ugly by brad gilbert Mm-hmm. Is, is number two. I mean, if we're talking specifically tennis, um, that's number two. Uh, Brad Gilbert obviously was the master of winning ugly, and I like the way that he sort of deals with the actual tactics. Um, maybe number three would be The Inner Game of Tennis. Mm-hmm. Um, Timothy Galway, I think that book sort of set the table for, I mean, just the whole area of maybe sports psychology. And I know, you know, there's all the stories about uh, Pete Carroll using it with his teams and Phil Jackson using it with his players. So that's an, that's an oldie, but a goodie. So those are three books specifically for tennis that I like. Awesome. Appreciate that, Mark. Uh, I have no problem with books, man. I got you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I knew that this question actually, <laughs> I'm yeah, a I yeah, 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 exactly. I saw that in your profile. So, 
Uh, tough for other people, but easy for you. You're a learned man, a gentleman and a scholar, as they say. <laughs> so, yeah, sure. All right. Uh, this this could potentially be just absolutely terrible. I, I love tennis puns. So if you could rate this uh, from one being terrible and 10 being great. All right. Here we go. I like my matches like my tennis balls. Pressureless. <laughs> oh my god oh man i like my matches like i like my tennis ball pressureless well a i don't like pressureless balls and um yeah i don't know i gotta give you a, i'll go i'll go with a three on that one all right nice i like the the tough judgment there yeah it's it made it's, me laugh i give it, you a three ah, there we go thanks appreciate that uh so what is next uh f- for you mark like what what are your next uh next moves for the i guess maybe the next like six months or three months or so Six months is probably too big for me to deal with, but um, the next uh, in the next short period of time, we have a practice week in LA next week. Uh, after that, we're going to go to the Templeton uh, Challenger event, which is up near San Luis Obispo here in uh, California wine country. Sweet. And then we'll have a week off, and then we'll go to Europe to play Linz and Luxembourg indoors, which are cool events. Linz, Austria, and then Luxembourg, which is a, a small Flemish country where I think rich Europeans hide their money. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, and then after that, we might play a couple more challengers in the U.S. before the season's over. Um, sprinkled in there, I think I have a couple, I may do a couple TV things, who knows, cool. to be decided. Um, cool. And uh, yeah, then we'll, that'll lead us into November. November, I we have the Maui event, which I can't wait. Mm-hmm. December 7th, we have the LA Tennis Bash, our third annual, which is our big mm-hmm. fundraiser for our first break. We get all the pro players out there. Last year, we had, we had a special live ball event last year where some generous uh, donors got to spend a little money, and they got to play tennis with, we see we had Stevie out there, Stevie J, Sam Query. Gibbs, Shelby Rogers, Steve Nash, um, Tim Oliphant, Lindsey Davenport, Tracy Austin. We had an unbelievable lineup of players um, who these people got to basically play king of the court with, um, which was awesome. But uh, So, yeah, that's December 7th, and at that point we'll be in the preseason getting ready for Australia. So um, a lot's going to happen in the next three months, my friend. Wow. Wow. Definitely. Uh, if you guys are around or even if, you know, if you can make it out there, check those events out. That's wonderful. And, uh, yeah, my friend said, uh, he, that Steve Nash plays four or five, uh, leagues out there. So that's He's pretty good. Yeah. He plays here at Manhattan country club, which is, you know, like right in my hood. And, uh, I've been able to, I played tennis with him a couple of times. It's pretty good. I will say he, he's actually very good. Awesome. Yeah. I randomly, yeah. uh, saw him in a hotel elevator once really nice guy, but, um, awesome. And, uh, where can we follow you, Mark on, uh, on social media? Yeah, at Mark Lucero on Twitter and Instagram, M-A-R-C-L-U-C-E-R-O. Um, those are my two social media outlets uh, that I am on. I'm on Facebook, but I don't really use it, obviously. But um, Instagram and Twitter, I return messages um, as long as they're not ridiculous. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm happy to talk tennis with anybody. If anybody has questions about you know coaching or getting into the business, um, I'm always happy to provide feedback and I like to interact with people who love tennis like I do. Awesome. I appreciate that. And last question. I always ask this question to end the, uh, the show. What is one key tip that you can give us to help us improve our tennis games? Mm-hmm. I, I like a couple tips. One is keep your head still. Mm-hmm. Two is keep your shoulders as still as possible. Everyone tries to see like what Nadal is doing and everyone, they think they're jumping around and, whatever but um 
these guys are not moving while they hit. While they're swinging the racket, they're keeping their upper body still, as still as possible, keeping their shoulders over the shot, and nothing's moving until after they've you know finished their swing, after they've finished contact. Um, those are the couple things that I would say. Um, I've heard some ridiculous coaching things up there. I was teaching this one older guy one time, and uh, I told him to hit the bottom of the ball. We we're working on hitting top spin. I told him to hit the bottom of the ball. And he's like, no way. My teaching for the club told me all the pros hit the top of the ball. I, I, I'm like, dude, that's ridiculous. <laughs> oh, uh, man. Like I told him something that was like earth-shattering information, you know? Wow. wow. Um, but I, I will say like, you know, those two tips I said about keeping your head still, about trying to keep your shoulders still, what the pros do. And when I work with people that are club players, what I end up doing is – focusing on the basics and if i spend time with somebody in a lesson it's going to be doing stuff that's really basic that they don't do and so i would say try not to make it too complicated and remember that what the good players do well and what you should be working on are the fundamentals and the basics and keeping it really simple exactly a lot of times uh, us as amateurs try to do too many fancy things but we just need to focus on on those uh, basic things that will help us succeed so uh mark i uh, really really do appreciate your time like i mentioned it's really a pleasure speaking with you on the podcast and uh wishing you and uh shelby uh, and your team nothing but the the best of luck moving forward so i uh, really appreciate it thank you so much man i appreciate the conversation thanks for having me on anytime mark thanks a lot all right i really hope you enjoyed my interview with mark lucero and a uh, big shout out again to mark for coming on to the tennis files podcast i really do appreciate it And uh, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tennis Files podcast and you enjoyed the show, then I would really love it if you could leave a review for the show. And you can do that on the the, uh, podcast app of choice that you use to listen to the show. Uh, For example, if you're using Apple Podcasts, you can actually go to tennisfiles.com slash iTunes because that was a link that was set up before Apple changed to Apple Podcasts. And then there's going to be a subscribe button there. Uh, There'll be a button on whatever app you use. So I really would appreciate that. It would give more visibility to the show and uh, help more people find it and consequently help more people improve their tennis game. It was a lot of fun talking to Mark, and I hope that you really uh, learned a lot on the show today. And uh, as I mentioned, any of the links that were uh, mentioned by Mark or I, uh, you can find at actually at tennisfiles.com slash 112. Uh, that is the show notes page. And I'd also like to leave you with a quote, as I often do at the end of the show, to hopefully to help uh, educate and inspire you. And today's quote is by Bo Jackson, who said, set your goals high and don't stop till you get there. Uh, Really, really inspiring quote there. Uh, Very inspiring, like a lot of the things that Mark mentioned on the show today as well. And as I've been mentioning, it would also be great if you all checked out really all the different great podcasts on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, which I'm proud to be a part of. And you can do that at TennisFiles.com slash TCPN. That's TennisFiles.com slash TCPN. And there's a lot of different great podcasts there, like the Tennis.com podcast and the various podcast from Cracked Rackets, uh, also uh, Coffee Break by Noah, uh, Ruben, and Mike Cation, and um, and the other ones there as well. Uh, sorry if I 
didn't mention some of them. But in any case, I really do appreciate all your support of the show, and I'm really excited to bring you some really great interviews coming down the pike as well. So with that, thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.